So it is uh, May 29th, 2016. Tomorrow is Memorial Day. And uh, this might be a decent time to recognize those who served in the armed forces. Would you stand up if you're in here and are a veteran? Amen. How about a hand clap for these guys? This will not be a traditional service, uh, not a traditional Memorial Day service. And if you came today to hear about honor and valor and uh, the life of a soldier, I would just, I want to show you a slide. These are three messages on our website that uh, deal with World War II, the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, and there are literally dozens of times in which we took history's examples and looked at the Jesus story through the eyes of a soldier. This morning, I don't want to do that. Those are some of my favorite messages. But I do not feel beholden to a calendar that is um, created by this, this country. I love America. I love what's going on here. The calendar that I'm more concerned with at this point in my life is the calendar that God designed. Can you say amen to that? So here is our first and last soldier scripture today. This will be 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 4. Endure hardship like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. It is my desire today to be pleasing to the one who enlisted me in his ranks. Uh, I am not beholden to this world not beholden to this world's affairs. And with all of my heart, I'm going to try to deliver to you what he delivered to me. So if you are texting right now, you probably want to stop that. If you are distracted right now, you probably want to tune in. Because when the God of the universe gives a word, I wouldn't want to be in the category of people that ignored that. We get an amen? Amen. Get an amen from that side of the room. Timo, we got an amen over there. Thaddeus, we got an amen. Amen. All right. We are looking for those whom God is looking for. And here's what Isaiah 55.10 says. Follow me there. Say there when you were there. This is why I'm bringing the word that I'm bringing today. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. Somebody say seed for the sower. Seed for the sower. And bread for the eater. And bread for the eater. So is my word. His word is seed for the sower. His word is bread for the eater. So today we want you to get a full meal and today we want you to have something to plant in the lives of others. Amen? Amen. So is my word that goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I have sent it. So I say, Father, may your word be seed for my sowing, bread for my eating. May your word achieve your purpose for which you sent it to me. The word that God gave me today has a purpose in each one of your lives. There's a few of you here that it might serve to condemn you on that day. You might stand before the King of Kings having heard a loving, godly, powerful message, and you stand more guilty because you sat through it 
and did not obey it. But there are many more of you here today that will hear that word, hear that purpose, and it will direct your heart, your footsteps, your life, your love, and your passions. And for you, it is meant to be a witness that this is the way and you walk in it. Somebody say amen in the house of God. Nehemiah 9.20 is another passage that is worth considering before we move into the meat of our word today. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths. You gave them water for their thirst. If the word of God is like seed for the sower or bread for the eater, the Holy Spirit is the great instructor in our lives. The word is the teaching and the Holy Spirit is the teacher. We're going to just put these themes on our board over here. On the right hand side of the board, we're going to put word. And on the left hand side of the board, we're going to put spirit. For some reason, churches tend to overemphasize one or the other. And if you neglect either, then you have lost both. Where I think we ought to go today is to review some of Pastor Sutherland's message from Wednesday. How many of you were here on Wednesday? Amen. Then this will be review for you, and perhaps we'll expound in some other directions as we do it. What an extraordinary message that was. It was about love calling us. About the King of Kings calling us into His presence. About the focus of his call being love and not sin. We'll get into that a little more. While this is on the screen, turn in your Bibles. So we're going to leave this on the screen and turn in your Bibles to Mark 12. When you get to Mark 12, say there. Amen. like popcorn. In Mark 12, let us pick up in verse 24. There was a question that was asked uh, of Jesus. And I don't want to get into the question because the fact that they asked it earns them a rebuke. Let's begin in the 24th verse. Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures, say the scriptures, or the power of God? Both the scripture and the power of God are necessary to avoid error in your understanding, to avoid error in your application. If you have the scripture, but you have no power to carry it out, it's useless. If you have power, but you have no scripture to guide your uh, Holy Ghost anointed life, you will end up in weirdness. You might end up chasing angel feathers or something ridiculous like that. The goal is not to have one or the other, but to be guided by both. When we're looking at this chapter, do you see that above the 28th verse, it says the greatest commandment? So if I ask you, don't look at your Bibles for a minute, look at me. If I ask you, hey, what is the greatest commandment? What are you most tempted to say? How about that? And that's the way that that's quoted all of the time. Let's read what Jesus actually said in Mark 28, uh, 12, 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, 
Aren't you glad he approves of Jesus? He asked him, of all of the commandments, which is the most important one? Isn't that the question I asked you a minute ago? Jesus clarifies the question. The most important one? We can't be mistaking then in his answer, can we? He restated the question and now he brings the answer. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second, now he's answering a question that he was not asked. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. When Jesus was asked the question, he did not begin with the Sunday school answer that you learned. He did not begin with love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He began with the verse that is in Hebrew on your screen now. It is Deuteronomy 6.3. But when he begins with this, he's doing something called stringing pearls. He is referring to the larger context that is all around it. Shouldn't we know what the most important commandment is? Don't you think? Do, should we abridge what Jesus says? So, but wait a minute, Pastor, the Synoptic Gospels say this just a little differently. Yes, because they expected you to know the verse that came before it. They expected you to know that. They never counted on such a biblically ignorant generation that had absolutely no respect or love for Israel or their word or their culture. They never could have conceived of such a society that would hold a Bible in their hand, be sworn into office on it, and then make laws against it. They never conceived of people who would call themselves the church and hate Israel. How, people who would say that they want to be saved, that Jesus is their Savior, but not recognize that He was born to Jewish parents, was a Jew, is a Jew, is the King of the Jews. They never could have conceived of the Hellenistic takeover of the church. And yet the Holy Spirit knew that it would happen, and we have Romans 9 through 11 to address it. Let's go to Deuteronomy. We're going to leave this on the screen, and we're going to be in Deuteronomy 6 and see what we can gather from this passage. We're starting in verse 1. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. If I say these are, and that's where we started, what is the these? See, this is a real problem with chapter headings, isn't it? This is a real problem with picking up in Deuteronomy 6.1. If you don't know what Deuteronomy 5 is, and how many of you would be a little nervous if I said, hey, stand up and tell me the content of Deuteronomy 5 with your Bible closed in your lap? Okay, so I hear around the room people would be a little nervous. Like, walk, walk somewhere else, Pastor. These are the commandments follows the giving of the commandments in Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy 6 cannot be divorced from Deuteronomy 5. These are the commandments that I give you, or, or just gave you, is building upon what was just said in Deuteronomy 5. In Deuteronomy 5, God actually said that Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me, that it might go well with them. In Deuteronomy 5, God gave His instruction to shape our hearts. So in Deuteronomy 6, when we pick up with the first 
verse, we are talking about every command that came off of the mountain. Amen? Amen. Say every command. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all His decrees and commands that I give you, so that you may enjoy a long life. Keeping the Word would result in a long what? It would also result in fearing the Lord. Wouldn't you think that breaking a command would result in fearing the Lord? It's keeping the commands that cause you to have a greater love, a greater respect for the Lord. Breaking them only hardens your heart so that you're less aware of Him. Keeping the commands, he says, causes that. Did you notice that? Now watch Jesus answer. This is the third verse of Deuteronomy, the most important... No, we're going to do it in Hebrew on the slide. Uh... This is the third verse, the most important commands, beginning. Shema Yisrael, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Or some would say one Lord. In the text, Pastor Wade pointed out to us that there are different letters that are larger than the other letters. This would be the ancient equivalent to highlighting. So if you picked up, if I pick up your Bible, will I find anything noted or highlighted in your Bible? Has anything stood out to you in your years of reading and studying that you wanted to remember and take note of? What's wrong? Did y'all go back to... Would y'all rather that we just serve a communion? Uh, Say, my daddy beat your daddy in dominoes and send you out the door? Or do you want to learn something today? Uh, are you already familiar with, with the Deuteronomy script of Hebrew? No. All right. So you're going to have to wake up and follow me. Everybody in the, I'm not going to settle for one of you not doing it. We're, we're blessed in here today that there's about 55, 60 families. Which means I can get to every one of you. And I'm that kind of guy, just so you'll know. Nobody will coast through this service. It it won't happen. Because when God speaks, I I took the time to listen. And I I expect that you get it. I mean, I, I want you to get it in a way that changes your heart and your life. The very first word of this text is on the right hand side of your screen. And it is Shema. The, the Shema has letters. Written from right to left. The Shin, the Mem, and the Ayin. Those are the three letters. The Ayin has under it an arrow pointing to it. Do you all see that? Do you notice that what looks kind of like a Y in our language, the Ayin, is larger than the other letters? If you had a Hebrew typewriter, it would be the same size as the others. That is a textual note from the men who transcribed this. And they say that from the very first manuscripts, which we do not have, all the way down the line, it always appears this way. Which means that whoever first copied it carried on a tradition that it would be copied this way always. The last letter of Shema, Ayin, is enlarged. Then on the left side of your screen, the last letter of the word Ichad, the Dalit, it is also larger than the other text. In fact, to a new person in Hebrew, it makes it harder for me to recognize these letters because these are shaped 
just a little bit larger than every other. How many of you know what the word minuscule is? Say, hey, man, uh, don't bother me with those minuscule details. Y'all know that word, minuscule? This is called the majuscule. It's the exact opposite of minuscule. I want to suggest to you that you not let minuscule things get in the way of learning about this majuscule. Because there is a beautiful witness here. The word Shema in Hebrew is Strong's number 8085. And it doesn't simply mean to hear. Uh, Have you ever called your children? You saw them turn and look at you, but they kept doing what they were doing? Now, I don't know what slang language was like in your house. And in mine, growing up, some of it's repeatable and some it's not. But my parents' reaction was a little bit like Angel's just was. Oh, no. You didn't hear me. What was coming next was a, was a, a fit of rage. In Hebrew, the word means that your auditory senses were engaged and you began to show it by your action. In other words, to simply have heard but not done anything, you did not shema. Shema is to hear and to obey. If you look it up in a dictionary like the complete word study, it is to hear and to obey. With that in mind, Shema is very similar to faith, isn't it? Now, what do we hear? What do you want to hear? Do you want to hear Oprah Winfrey? Do you you, uh, want to hear Anise Parker? Who, Who do you want to hear? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. What we are listening for, the very first and most important thing in the commandments, is that we hear and obey when God speaks. Somebody say amen. Amen. The second word here, ihad, ihad is like when we say, all five of us are with you. As one man, we charged into the principal's office. Um, Or if you've ever read in the Newer Testament and seen, they were all in one accord. Right? It's not a Honda. It's a state of mind and being. It means harmony. The Greek word that corresponds to it is homothumadon, which we don't have time to teach about. The word ihad is probably best represented by an object. An object that God designed. The object has seven branches on it, but is one object. This is called the menorah. It is symbolized throughout the scripture. The symbology in the scriptures, when you see a menorah, it represents the spirit of God. And although Isaiah and the book of Revelation say there are seven spirits of God, we call those seven the Holy Spirit or the Ruach HaKadosh, spirit of holiness, which incidentally is one of the seven. So it is uh, seven Completely distinct and yet totally indistinguishable. (laughs) I recognize that that's a contradiction. Uh, Characteristics of God. And the point here being that we hear and obey God's word and recognize not just that he's monotheistic, not that he's just one in number, but that he is never divided over anything. How many of you like Brussels sprouts? How many of you hate Brussels sprouts? How many of you like Brussels sprouts if they're cooked right? 
Do you see how divided we are on Brussels sprouts? God doesn't have three opinions on any subject. He doesn't. One of the things that's difficult when you travel to Israel is every archaeological site has at least two opinions. This is where the Orthodox say, this is where the Catholics say, and then there's a third one because neither of those two guys were right. With God, there is a singular opinion on everything. He is, if you could say it this way, his heart, his soul, and his strength are never going in different directions. They are never uh, conflicted. He never has mixed emotions. He is totally all in. Do you know what brings you into that state? His spirit. When his word is heard by you and you begin to obey it and his spirit brings you into a oneness with God, that is what it is like in the middle of worship when you're right with him. And it's why every other problem fades away. It's why you feel... um, So enlivened and empowered for the first time, maybe in your week, all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your strength is being directed towards the Lord. And you know what? It turns out it feels pretty good. The reason that first letter and that last letter are uh, magnified, are majuscule, is it forms the word witness in Hebrew. That witness is twofold. It means, number one, that God is witnessing to you a promise. It means, number two, that when you have heard his word and are obeying it, and when his spirit has brought you into oneness with God, you have become his witness. That was so important to the early transcribers that they magnified or put a majuscule in the text So that you would never forget that the Word and the Spirit are what create the witness. And when you have the witness of the Word and the witness of the Spirit, you become His witness. Do you begin to follow me now? I want to encourage you about a couple things regarding that. The Word and the Spirit agree. There is never a time that they disagree. The Spirit of God confirms the Word of God, and the Word of God confirms what the Spirit does. They form a witness. We want in our lives what should be majuscule are the things that God's Word says and His Spirit had led us to do. Or put it in the other direction. The things that are majuscule to us that should be magnified, the major uh, emphasis are the things the Spirit led us to in God's Word. How many of you know the Bible says many things? I mean, you can find, well, what you do, do quickly. Or Jesus wept. Or one of my personal favorites, 2 Samuel 10, contains a passage about men's beards being shaven, their garments being altered to expose something, and they're walked in shame. That's not necessarily God's word for Andrew today, though, is it? It is God's word, but it's not the word that the Spirit of God is giving Andrew for his life today. The word that God gives Andrew, though, with the Spirit becomes magnified to him. It's everything. There's a difference between knowing God's word to humanity and out of God's word to humanity, something that he is specifically telling you right now. And that is a greater witness. Do not let the minuscule... Get in the way of the majuscule. 
Do not let things that are worthless get in the way of the only thing that is of worth in your entire life. I want to tell you why. The majuscule is in this text, I told you earlier, as a promise from God. So one is you become a witness, but the other is that God is witnessing something here. And he's undivided. He's soul in his purpose. And here's what he's promising you. It is in Deuteronomy 6.4. I'm sorry, 6.5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Say heart, heart. soul, soul. Strength. strength. The witness of God in this text is the word of God, the spirit of God, And the witness of God, perhaps you could see a trinity here if you wanted to, all tell you something. When you keep these commands, it will cause you to love the Lord your God with every area of your being. I don't think this is as much a command as it is a promise. When you learn to hear the word and obey it, when you learn to get ihad in one with the Lord, when the Word, the Spirit, and the witness of God, in other words, the Godhead, the, however you would like to say that, become real to you, it causes you to love the Lord with all of your being. Somebody say, that's good news. Have you ever wondered, how do I fall in love with the Lord? How do I get closer to the Lord? It begins by trying to obey Him. And of course, what happens when you first try to obey Him? You fall on your face. Which gives Him the opportunity to forgive you. And man, don't you love much the one that you've wronged and He forgives you? Now, you were wrong before you ever tried to follow Him, but you didn't know it. It's when you begin trying to follow him that you become aware of your sin. In John 4, 23, I want to read you these words. It says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Can we say that the word is truth? Whatever the word says is true. But we need to rightly handle truth. Not every true thing needs to be said, does it? You ever see somebody in a really ugly sweater? Is it God's will for you to walk up and make sure they understand how ugly their sweater is? Could be, but you would need God to show you that that was what needed. So truth then has a second element. Not every factual thing needs to be said the moment you realize it's a fact. Oh, listen, this side of the room, especially front couple rows. We have to learn to have spirit-led speech because the word spoken at the time God intends for it to be spoken, that is truth in the fullest sense. Amen? Amen. Don't hate me because I'm beautiful. (laughs) Not every true thing has to be said. We can... We can just let it go unspoken. Jen, do you have anything to say to me today? Oh, listen to that statement of faith. My wife does not love my beard, but she's learning to. Okay. We probably ought to get on with God here. How about that? Turn with me to James 4, 8, and let's go to the next slide. 
We're still reviewing Pastor Sutherland's message because I get to. There's no other reason than I get to. It was a good message and I want to dwell on it. So James 4.8 says that when you draw near to him, what does he do? Draws near to you. So Pastor Sutherland began teaching us from Leviticus 1, 1 through 3, that there's a Hebrew concept called korban here. And it had to do with drawing near to the Lord when you wanted to bring something near to him. So if you ever felt far away and you wondered how you get close to the Lord, he is telling you that if you obey his commands by trying to do these things, performance is, is, is um, secondary. If you are trying to do these things, he will draw near to you. And the first thing that we noticed is that in the first five chapters of Leviticus, we had five offerings. What was interesting about that is when you look at the Olah, the Mensha, and the Shilim, they are not mentioned as having anything to do with sin. That is a great misnomer about Judaism. That the sacrifices were there because the people were sinful and they needed to atone for their sin. That's usually all we can think about when you hear the word sacrifice. Well, an Olah, it's not mentioned about sin. A, a Mensha, sin, not mentioned. A Shalim, sin, not mentioned. Three-fifths or 60% of the sacrifices available to Jews had nothing to do with sin. You know what they had to do with? Drawing near to the Lord. God knew that if you took steps, the first one had to do with ascending If you set your heart towards meeting him, and the second one, you began to bring him some kind of tribute. The third one, if you desired to show him thanksgiving, peace, or fellowship, he knew that something would come up. He knew that the real obstacle would arise. So that by the time you get to the fourth chapter, you are dealing with sin for the first time. In other words... God knew that when you began to approach him, sin would become an issue. But it was the man who was striving after him who would be concerned about his own sin. And love for the Lord would lead you to him so that he could deal with your sin. As a pastor, I know firsthand. I can spend all day chasing people down, telling them they sin, and telling them how to get out of their sin. But if they don't have a very great love for the Lord... They tell you what you want to hear, and the moment you leave, they continue in their sin. I I, I know it firsthand. Most of the church is in some strange sin management kind of business, where what we're talking about all week is sin. And we're measuring success in whether you went longer days between the same sin or not. This was never supposed to be. It was as you were following the Lord, something would happen. You would become concerned about your sin that is causing you to fall short of His presence. And you would ask Him and He would help you deal with that sin, right? That was called a chata. It's a sin that causes you to miss God or be led astray. And it always led to the last kind of offering, an asham, which is for your guilt that resulted from sin. Now, I say all of that to get to something new. Are you ready for something new? Turn with me to 1 Kings. You still with me? You still awake?
I recognize that I'm more aggressive than many pastors and that what most people want is somebody who resembles Santa Claus, that um, although he has an excellent beard, seems to have no actual discipline in him, no actual confronting of sin in him. And so what characterizes our pulpits these days are old men that can never say anything that is um, remotely confrontational and young men that are trying to be popular and famous. Okay, I don't desire either one of those things. If you leave here in the exact same condition than you walked in, then I wasted your time. And if you were already in a perfected state when you walked in here, you're wasting our time. So what we're hoping to do here is learn something where the Spirit will illuminate the Word to you in a way that you carry away something that is life-changing. Do you want that? Amen, because we're going to get that. Here comes 1 Kings 8, and let us pick up in Solomon's prayer in verse 46. When they sin against you, This is Solomon speaking about his fellow Israelites to the Lord. For there is no one who does not sin. And you become angry with them and give them over to their enemy who takes them captive to his own land far or near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they're held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their conquerors and say, We have sinned. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all of their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and prayed to you toward the land you gave their fathers, toward the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. In this passage, we really have a few things going on. And um, I'll put it in black on on the board here. The first is... We have sinned. When you see we have sinned, that is the word that we use to describe everything. So when we say we have sinned, that could be you murdered someone and dismembered them. Or it could be under pressure so that you were not personally defamed, you told a lie to look better than you were. Are those two things equivalent? Well, ask the person who was murdered and dismembered if they're equivalent. See, this Christian concept that all sin is equal, well, it's all equal in the sense that it's all sin, but it is certainly not equal. I mean, what Hitler did is far greater sin than what my grandmother did. And uh, it doesn't take much study of Jesus' words to find out, while all punishment is eternal... There are varying degrees of reward and punishment, even eternally. I'm not going to debate that today. I simply want to show you something for the Jews. Here they say, we have sinned. Secondly, in in verse 47, they say, we have done wrong. For us, that sounds very much like the same thing, but these are different Hebrew words. Third time, they say, we have acted wickedly. From this, from the Word of God, they derived three kinds of sin. The first here is the word chata. Go back to our... Oh, it's on the slide. Do you see number 2398? 
Tell me you see it. This is the kind of sin where you simply missed it. it. It indicates ignorance or stupidity. When I say ignorance or stupidity, this is the kind of sin that you didn't set out to do something wicked. You just did something wicked because you didn't know the righteous thing that you should do. Or you just terribly mishandled it. But there was not a negative intention. Has anybody understand what I'm saying with that? Man, I... (laughs) Unfortunately, this has characterized way too many years of my life. The second one is called Awa. A-W-A-H. It's Strong's number is 5753. This is different. This is something is twisted in you. The word means twisted. And what this tends to look like is an error might characterize chata. Man, I, I did that and I shouldn't have done it. But by the time we graduate to this second kind of sin, this twisted nature, awa, this indicates something that is um, a fault in you where you are knowingly compromising the word. I know the word says this, but I am going to do this differently, right? Because I'm weak, because I'm a sinner, because whatever it might be. The last one that the word translates in the NIV wickedly is rasa. When I say rasa... It's number 75, 61. These are roots. When you conjugate them, they sound a little differently. This has to do with an intentional wrongdoing. In other words, there was malice aforethought. You, uh, he wronged me. And uh, revenge is a dish best served cold. Revenge is the sweetest serve cold, therefore revenge is ice cream. You have heard that? This is, I'm going to get you. And what's most interesting is in our sacrificial system, when you're looking, you don't see sacrifice intended for awa or rasa. What is sacrifice intended for? Chata. Chata. In other words, the sacrificial system there was there to, to cure your stupidity. To, to cure your ignorance, to show you God's standards. Well, what then do you do with Awa and Rasa? Because is there anybody in here that is going to tell me that they haven't been twisted in their thoughts? Anybody in here that when they were struck on the left cheek at some point in their life didn't strike back on the right cheek? So what do you do? That was a problem in the sacrificial system as well. The Jews have come up with many answers that I don't think are biblical. And as a proof text for that, they're distinctly written to try to avoid the truth of the way that this has to be dealt with. Turn with me to Psalm 119. Say there when you were there. And I promise we're going somewhere significant with this. In Psalm 119, I want you to notice this phrasing. And this will begin to do something, I hope. Not I hope, I know. Psalm 119, look at verse 165. Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. I will wait for your salvation, O Lord, and 
I will follow your commands. If you have to wait for salvation and follow commands, then they are two separate things. Following commands does not equal salvation, does it? Following commands is what you do while you wait for salvation. Skim down the page. Look at uh, Psalm 119 verse 173. May your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. You choose to live in the precepts, but you have to wait and long for the salvation. Do you see that? In fact, here, he, he speaks of a love for the word, but he also asks for the power of the Spirit by saying, your hand. Did you see that in that verse? He says, may your hand be ready to help me. How does God help you? He's asking to be instructed by the word and helped by the Spirit while he waits for salvation. There's a reason for this. Let's put these two on the screen. This is pretty familiar to some people, but you may never have thought about it in this way. How about Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. Do you know who said that? Who said it? What had David just done? There was no sacrifice for that sin. There is no way in all of Judaism to deal with that kind of wickedness. Do you know what he had to do? He had to say, Lord, look, I'm trying to draw near to you. Will you draw near to me? There is a gap that can't be closed. You're going to have to create in me something altogether new. This is when David is said to have a heart like God. Do you know why? God heard him and answered his prayer. Sin was not expiated or uh, covered over. There was no way to deal with this. You would, could only trust the Lord. You kept His commands and you waited for Him to save you. As you worked through getting closer to Him, you became more and more aware. How, how about this one in Psalm 32 and verse 2? Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not Count against him and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Guys, the psalmists were waiting for God to deal with the things they couldn't deal with. It was a first century perversion of Judaism that said, because I have the law, I'm righteous. That is not at all what the Older Testament taught. It actually taught, if you do these things, you will be drawing near to me and you will be waiting for me to fix the problems that cannot be fixed in you any other way. But the only people who became aware of their great need for God to fix them were those who were trying to draw near to Him and kept realizing, no matter what I do, I'm guilty, I need your help. For that reason, we have passages like Hosea 6, 6. This is one quoted in the New Testament as well, so people tend to know it. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. How does the God who asked for burnt offerings say that's not really what I was after? Because it was supposed to lead you to something. Bringing Him an offering, desiring to korban and get close to Him was supposed to lead you to a, a, a one conclusion. 
I have sin that cannot be fixed. I am irrevocably broken. But I trust you because you said that I could come near to you. So I'm trying to come near to you. And as you come near to me, I will know that my sin has been dealt with. Because we met with each other. Now, it's in man's nature to try to take something as beautiful as that and make it rote religious practice. We do it all of the time when we do three songs and then a prophecy, two songs, then an altar call, then we preach, and then we go home. What we are doing is taking something that is beautiful and started off being spirit-led, and we are reducing it to ritual. And then what do we say? We're right with God because we go to one of those churches. No, you're right with God when the issue, as you draw near to Him, the issue He wants to deal with in your life, you let Him deal with. That's when you're right with Him. That's when the Word and the Spirit form a witness and you have removed from your life, or He has removed from your life, the thing that was holding you back. See, what we want is we want... To not dwell on the minuscule, we want to dwell on the majuscule. The minuscule is the sin that you prefer to think about. The sin like, yes, it's true. One time I kept a gallon of milk that I wasn't charged for. No, that's the minuscule and it's why you don't mind mentioning it. The majuscule is the thing that you're ashamed of, that you don't want anybody to know, that you would never mention out loud. And you hope to God when there's a prophet in the house... That he doesn't get near enough to you to call it out. When we let God deal with the things that have brought guilt upon us and shame upon us in the way that he desires to deal with it, then we become right with him. This is what David's doing and it was written in all of the Psalms for us. This is what Hosea is speaking about. By the way, Psalm 19 does the very same thing. He speaks of forgiving my errors, my hidden faults and my hidden sin that rules over me. See, if you let this sin progress in your life, it ends up mastering you. But that's still not what I wanted to talk to you about today. Let's get to this next slide. When you see this slide, you could brace yourself. Pastor, this was a neat revelation. I appreciate it. This was seven years ago. And uh, I just can't hear another message about God's throne. This won't have anything to do with God's throne. Well, it does have something to do with God's throne. But that's, that's not our... That's the minuscule today. The majuscule is something else. It turns out that when you're reading the book of Numbers, and we're not going to do it, that the second chapter and third verse tells us that Judah camped on the east side. Uh, The word says that clearly. It it turns out that in Numbers, the second chapter and tenth verse, we find that Reuben camped on the south side. In Numbers, the second chapter in the eighteenth verse, we found out that Ephraim was on the west side. And in Numbers, the second chapter and 25th verse, we find out that Dan was on the north side. And what is amazing about that is it tells a story. And we won't teach on that today, but you can read it. When you look at the sun rising every day in the east, it would say, May he be praised. Behold the sun, the doubly blessed one, he that judges has come. It was teaching about Jesus. And more than that, the standard of each tribe This forms what is God's throne in the living creatures. On the east, we have the face of a lion. On the south, the face of a man. On the west, the face of an ox. And on the north, the face of an eagle. 
uh, Ezekiel, the first chapter, Ezekiel, the second chapter, Ezekiel, the 10th chapter, Revelation, the fourth chapter. These are the faces of the living creatures. But again, we're not going to teach on that. Now that you know this, though, there are some other things that are just extraordinary to plug in. And I want to start with something, what a Cohen is. How many of you have heard the word Cohen? Okay, these are not just um, ridiculously wicked movie directors. In Moses' day, this was the word for a priest. And it was comprised of some neat Hebrew. In modern Hebrew, this letter that I'm putting on the right is a cough. Um, this one, a hay. This one that comes at the end of the word is the way a noon looks. In Moses' day, these letters look more like this. The cough looked like an open palm. The hay, even if you're Baptist, the hay was a man worshiping with his hands raised. The noon was a seed, and that's how Moses drew it, which makes you wonder, how did he know that? Cohen had three uh, consonants in it. I'm going to write them in our language written this way. In their language, this one corresponds to the C, this one to the H, and this one to the N. Y'all following me here? I know it's a lot, but there's something that I want to get to with this. When you're looking at the Hebrew language written from right to left... This open palm symbolized something. The man with his hands raised also symbolized something. And the seed symbolized something. This is open. This man with his hands raised is revelation. And the thing that looks like a seed is sun. A priest was one who was open to the revelation that he could become God's son. Now, obviously the best example of a priest, period, Jesus, right? But we find out in the first chapter of John, in the 12th verse, that as many as believed on him, he gave the right to become sons of God, right? And so in 1 Peter 2.9, you hear that we can be a priesthood of God. We have the revelation that we can become a son. Say amen. Amen. Okay, now this is going to get super good. Let's take that off the screen for a minute. Put Revelation 15, verse 15. Not Revelation, Romans. I have written to you quite boldly on some points, as if to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty. Somebody say priestly duty. Priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. By the way, the gospel of God you could call the word of God. Uh, So that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Here again, we have the word and the spirit doing something even for the Gentiles, but it took a priest to show people that. The reason that I'm telling you that is because where we're going next... I believe is a priestly duty. Uh, I am a fat, pork-eating Gentile. My parents definitely not of any noble uh, heritage. If there's anything good in my family line, it's because I married into it. Or my family line married into it. Thank you, Erezina's and Hall household. And yet, 
Because I stand as one who is open to the revelation of the Son. God is revealing things to me. And they're building on each other in a way that is blowing my mind. You ready for it? Okay. I want to show you something and then we're going to arrange some furniture here. Okay? Because we know the directions of the camps... Because we know that Judah was on the east, which would be the right side of your screen. Because we know that Ephraim was on the west. Because we know Dan was to the north and we know Reuben was to the south. Because you've read numbers and you understand that, it lets us know what direction the tabernacle was set up in. Because it is through the eastern side that you enter the tabernacle. Does that make sense? And when you enter through the eastern side, that gives us an arrangement of things. Turn with me to Exodus, the 40th chapter. And when we look at this arrangement, I want you to see something that the living God is, is loved you enough to show you. In Exodus 40, let us pick up in verse 20. He took the testimony... And placed it in the ark. Attached the poles to the ark and put the atonement cover over it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung a shielding curtain. And shielded the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded him. So right now your eyes are starting to roll back in your head. And you're like, oh my God, there's going to be details. Don't get caught up in the minuscule. There's a majuscule here. There is something coming that just blows my mind. And it, it, it's, it's not through great effort, great study that, that I got it. There were literally a group of fired up Christians coming to my house the other night at about 10 o'clock. I was already in my pajamas. Jennifer and I really just wanted to crawl in bed, watch TV, and eat some popcorn. But we made an excellent choice. We decided that Netflix had no eternal value. That the popcorn would just be good for just a very little while. And that we never sleep enough to be rested. It might be better to spend a few minutes in the presence of God. A few minutes later, 25 fired up saints showed up. And they were preaching to us from the law, the prophets, the writings, from the gospels, from the epistles, and from the book of Revelation. All of them, all through the word. And God gave me a revelation for them because we're never supposed to come into the house of God empty-handed. By the way, I'm not going to do it to you today, but if you had to stand up and give a 15-minute word that came from the law, prophets, writings, would you be prepared or did you come into the house of God empty-handed? The only thing that you have of any worth is your obedience to Him. And as you're obedient to Him, His Spirit will highlight things in His Word that are important to your life. If you're waiting simply to get it from the pulpit, I will give you the best I can, but anybody who only eats twice a week is going to starve to death. Okay, so let's go to verse 21. 22. Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side. Somebody say north side. And the tabernacle outside the curtain and set out the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. Would you guys bring this table over? I want to show you something here. If it just says north side and you don't know how the tabernacle is is situated, that doesn't help us any, right? 
So if I tell you, hey man, um, we set up tents on the north side. And you say, well, north side of what? Right? That doesn't help us much. But if you know that the direction that the tabernacle is facing, that it has to face to the east, let's pretend for right now that the directions in here would be that door, the entrance back there is the east. What would that make this? The west. What would that make this? The north. And what would that make that? If we know the direction that you walked in this building so that we're facing north, and this table has to be placed um, on the north side, if, if this wall where the pulpit is is east, this table has to be facing then the north side. When you walk in, in your hands, what side is it on? The right. I began to put this together and watch what happens. Now, verse 24, he placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded him. Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned fragrance on it. If you know the directions the tabernacle is facing, that that's the entrance, that that's where the ark is, that this is where the table is, and this is where the menorah is. Once you begin to put that together, if you're standing in the holy place, then on your right side is a table that has something on it. (laughs) The one that I love. It has on it the bread of God's presence. If you were a Kohen and you walked into the tabernacle of God, on your right good Lord, on your right hand side would be a table, just like that, with bread set out for him. It was called the bread of God's presence. On the left hand side, there would be a seven pronged menorah. It's as if when you walked into the holy place, on your right side would be the word of God, and on the left side would be the Spirit of God. And right in front of you would be the place where God dwelled and the only thing separating you and it was a veil and an altar of incense that symbolized prayer. From a point of view that you're at, you are now staring at the uh, curtain. You're staring at the place where God alone dwells. And to your right is the Word of God. To your left is the power of God, the Spirit of God. And right in front of you is prayer. Do you all follow me so far? Okay, now watch where this takes us. If I don't strangle myself with this cord. If you were a thousand miles from this building and you had to hit that front door, if you strayed just a little bit to the right or the left, you'd miss the front door, wouldn't you? If you were 100 miles and you strayed just a little bit, you'd miss the front door. But once you came in the door, once you were in the holy place, if you look to the right, you see the Word of God. If you look to the left, you see the Spirit of God. If you look straight ahead, you see an altar of incense leading you into the presence of God. What is the only dangerous direction for me? Backwards. 
Only dangerous direction. If I go to the right, what do I find? If I go to the left, what do I find? If I go straight forward, where am I going? Into the presence of God. Turn with me to Isaiah 30 and look at your neighbor say, this is about to get nice. Isaiah 30. You can put it on the screen. They're, they're going to want this. In Isaiah 30, pick up with me in verse 19. O people of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the waters of affliction, your teacher will be hidden no more. With your own eyes you will see them, whether you turn to the right or the left. Your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. Next, then you will defile your idols, the ones that you overlaid with all kinds of stuff. Hear what the Word of God is saying to you. If you will come into the holy place, if you look to the right, you see the Word of God. If you look to the left, you see the Spirit of God. If you keep going straight, you're running into a collision with God. The one direction that's bad for you is sliding backwards. And so He stands behind you, the verse says. You will hear a verse behind you saying, No, 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 this is the way. Walk in this. You stay in the witness of my word. The witness of my spirit. I want you to know this is the way. Yes. We act as if it's an easy thing to fall out of the will of God. If you love Him and you get into the holy place, everywhere you look, all you see is Him. And if you turn the wrong direction, you hear His voice saying, this is the way. Walk in it. We are not like orphans. We have not been left to our own devices. His Spirit is here. His Word is here. And if you begin to depart from them, you hear Him calling you. This is the way. Walk in it. You know, this was a visible example on the earth of something that exists in the heavens. Hebrews 8.5 says this is a shadow, a copy. Moses got this on a mountaintop and he built it on the earth so you would know what God was like. It's as if he was saying, your kingdom that is there, let it be done here and now. He wants you to understand something about him. The New Testament writers evidently understood this. We're going to get to that, but I want to give you a couple pieces of how you know they understood it. Let's put Proverbs 3.16 on the screen. Keep in mind what our furniture is. Long life is in her right hand. We're speaking about wisdom. What's on the right side? The Word of God. Long life. Uh, I'll, I'll show you that in a second. In the right side, long life. Say that. Right side is? Long Left side is? Riches and honor. Now put Deuteronomy 4.40 on the screen. Listen to what the Word of God, which is what's in wisdom's right hand, and now is in your right hand. Keep His decrees and commands which I am giving you today, so that it may go well with you, 
and your children after you, that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. See, the Word of God brings you long life, and it's not far from you. It's in your hand. It's in your right hand. It's right there with you. Let's go to Numbers 14. In Numbers 14, verse 24, this is one of those passages people quote and name their kids after. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit, say spirit, spirit. and follows me wholeheartedly. By the way, wholeheartedly is ihad. It's, it's that one. Uh, it, it's the same concept. It's a different Hebrew word here, but same concept. I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. Proverbs 3.16 said, In the left hand of wisdom were riches and honor. Caleb is the only one of his generation other than Joshua that gets to go into the land. Would you call that riches? Yes. His daughters got to get uh, what he inherited. Would you call that honored? Yes. Why did he have it? Because he had a different spirit. What is in your right hand gives you long life. What is in your left hand will bring you riches and honor. You were supposed to have something in your right and in your left hand as you fix your gaze heavenward and forward. Let's then go to 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 7. When the apostle, go to verse 6, 2 Corinthians 6, 6. Impurity, understanding, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, and sincere love. Verse 7. Ah, in truthful speech, look at your right hand. Truthful speech, the word is truthful speech. And in the power of God, the Spirit, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the... Right hand and the left hand. See, when you've come into the holy place, you speak truthfully because His Word is truth. You are full of the power of God because it's at your left hand. When Paul is teaching us to deal with conflict, he said there's weapons of righteousness in my right hand, my left hand, because he's standing in the holy place. The only direction that is difficult for him is going backwards. And when he's tempted to, when he thinks about it, when he, when he goes astray, he hears a voice behind him saying, No, this is the way. Walk in this way. How good is our God? Give Him glory. It's 1221. So I'm not going to teach you Judges 7. But if I were going to teach you Judges 7, here's what you would find. An extraordinary army was dismissed. They were already outnumbered. But the great majority of them were dismissed. A relatively small group that was chosen because they focused on the right things. Went into battle. And in their right hand, they had a shofar that symbolizes sounding the word of God. In their left hand, they had a burning torch that symbolizes God's spirit. And the small army defeated the large army. Because large armies are minuscule to God. And men who yield to his word and his spirit are majuscule to God. You have weapons of righteousness in your right hand and your left. 
We can look over and over and over in the Scripture when it says that they don't know. The, the men of Nineveh didn't know their right hand from their left. It doesn't mean that they're stupid. It means that they're ignorant of God's Word and they're ignorant of God's power. You know who else He said that to? Pharisees and Sadducees in Mark 12. In Mark 12 He said, You greatly err because you don't know the Scripture or the power of God. You know what He's telling them. You know all about the temple, but you are not standing in the holy place. If you were standing where I am standing, you wouldn't be focused on these minuscule details like how many times she had been married. You would be focused on God's Word to you. Let me ask you. I have two more scriptures for you that I hope are encouraging. But has your life been defined by the minuscule or the majuscule? Can you stand here today and you know what His Spirit has showed you in His Word for your life? Or have you depended on like a bird feeder and if the Master doesn't put feed in the bird feeder, you starve? Because you are sons of God. You're supposed to stand open to revelation as a son. If you're going to be a priest, you have to learn to stand with open palms and raised hands as a son of God. And He speaks to you in the holy place. Do you know Gentiles couldn't go in here? Women couldn't go in here. Do you know the only people that could go in here were priests? And to be a priest, you had to be a son. Good thing that John, the first chapter and 12th verse says, as many as believed on Him, He gave the right to become sons. You can receive from Him in the holy place. Why would the Protestantism began? Because we didn't want a Pope to tell us what God had said. We wanted to hear for ourselves. Have we re-erected something more satanic than the original problem? Do you want somebody else to hear from God for you? It's at your right hand. His Spirit is at your left hand. When you start to slide backwards, His voice says, this is the way. Walk in it. I'm not saying that you can't hear from God. Through us, I'm saying that it can't be only through us. You are a priest. Oh man, we ought to be a priesthood. Look at Acts 4. Let's pick up in verse 31. I'm going to finish this message in the next six minutes. But I, with all of my heart, I, I'm trying to impact your life. Only you will know whether or not I succeeded in that. But I'm not going to leave this place today without having done what He told me to do. Amen. There have been many days in my life I did what I wanted to do. There have been many days in my life I did things I did not want to do. There have been many days in my life that I chata, I strayed and missed the mark. Or I became a twisted man. There have even been a few days in my life I acted wickedly. Today, I'm going to get it right. But the question is, how will you leave here? After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. Did we get a prophecy today about a shaking of everything that can be shaken? And you've come to a mountain that can't be shaken out of Hebrews 12. We got a prophecy from Natalie Erezina. The meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Say Spirit. Spirit. And spoke the Word of God boldly. See, the Spirit was at their left hand. The Word was at their right hand. And God was so in their midst that He shook the earth 
because they were in the holy place. How much time have you spent in the holy place? Don't let popcorn and Netflix and a desire to sleep a little longer keep you out of the only thing that can actually help you. Here is our last scripture today, and I hope it brings an earthquake. Go to Revelation, the 8th chapter. We're going to be in verse 1. Say there when you were there. I don't know whether I've made a dent today, but I can tell you I'm swinging at it with all of my heart. One of the most difficult things about preaching in this country as opposed to most countries that we go to is we're so gospel-hardened. We already think we know all. But our level of obedience has been outpaced by our level of education. So we do not do the things that we say that we know. When the majuscule shows up in your life, when the letters have become larger than they should be, and it forms a witness to you, when something is born of God in your soul, witnessed of God in your soul, it shows up in what you do. When you are just parroting back mindless doctrine that has been settled for hundreds of years in the hearts of the men that wrote it, but has never penetrated your heart, You deceive yourself. Church is so full of this. We've inoculated people of the gospel by teaching them to say the right things that their hearts never conceived of because they've never been in the holy place. So it takes a sledgehammer to break your heart because you're pretty sure that you're right with God already. Do you know this was the problem with the religious people of Jesus' day? They already believed they were right with God. So they missed the only one. They had the right hand and the left hand of God right there with them and missed it. They had never learned to recognize from standing in the holy place. In the 8th chapter of Revelation, this is the force that changes the earth. When he opened the seventh seal, say seventh seal. seal. That's near the end. Seventh seal is finishing it out. There was a silence in heaven for about half an hour. When heaven goes silent, it must be a pretty profound moment. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God. And to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer. Where is he standing? Right there. He's staring at the altar to incense. The Word of God's on his right hand. The Spirit is on his left hand. He is standing right there. And the readers understood that. He was given much incense to offer with all the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The throne of God was this side of a curtain that was torn in Jesus' ministry. And the throne of God was right here. The angel is standing before the throne. The Word, the bread of His presence at the right. The Spirit at the left. And He's gathering something from those who have been in the presence of the Most High. The incense that is the prayer of the saints. He is collecting something that came from those who stand in the holy place, that came from those who are the real priesthood, that came from those who are close to their God. He's collecting something from them, not the theologians, 
Not the Bible teachers. Not the pastors. Not the elders. Not the deacons board. Those who stand in the holy place. He's collecting something of theirs. With all the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of incense together with the prayer of the saints went up before God from the angel's hands. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it onto the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, (coughs) flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Do you want to pray with earth shaking power? You don't need to watch a new YouTube video. And I love the people that are out there doing street ministry and everybody's watching their videos. But you know what would be more profitable for you? Get into that holy place. Put His Word at your right hand, the Spirit at your left hand. Stare at His throne until you know the heart of the One who is on it. And when you pray according to His heart and according to His will, He will collect it in His presence and He will visit the earth with power that shakes this planet. The reason you can never be shaken is because everything that could be shaken off you was prior to coming into His presence. That's why we korban. That's why we draw close to Him. He reveals to us with every step we take what must go so that we can be in His presence. Church, all that remains here today, all that remains is your decision. Whether or not you want to go further with Him. Whether or not you embrace the kind of loving King that puts His Word at your right hand, His Spirit at your left hand, His throne before your face, and when you want to back up or are scared, He says, this is the way. Walk in it. Do you want Him? Or will you settle for your own idolatry? Because that was the choice in Isaiah 30, and it's the choice now. If you don't have time in the holy place, hear me. It's not because you couldn't get there. It's not because He didn't call you there. It's not because He didn't make a way. It's because you stood flat-footed and said no when He called you. Could you stand to your feet?